Well, like I said, the last time we met for this study titled Getting to Know the Old Testament, it was March. We're making our way through these Old Testament books of the Bible without a care in the world. We left off with Lesson 8, going through Joshua. And I fully expected to carry on with the next book, Judges, uh, the next week. But the COVID lockdown escalated quickly. And although we eventually started regathering on Sunday mornings, we didn't so soon start regathering on Sunday evenings. And so I guess Proverbs 16.9 got us again, which says, The mind of man plans his ways, but the Lord directs his steps. He often throws our plans out the window. I just wonder, though, maybe like 10 years from now, someone's going to listen to the series on the website and wonder, like, why is there a six-month gap between Joshua and Judges in the recordings? But, but oh, well, better late than never. We're excited to get back and uh, literally pick up where we left off. I am excited to get back into the Old Testament. We often preach through New Testament books, but it's so important for Christians to get to know their Old Testaments used to be where even non-Christians had a basic knowledge of the Bible. Those in the world knew essential facts from Scripture. They're part of the culture. Now, we know that's long gone. And now even Christians, though, who some even growing up in the church, they don't even know their Bibles very well, their Old Testaments. Many Christians have little to no basic Bible knowledge. But as we're starting to learn when we began this series, the Old Testament is the foundation of the Bible. And yes, we're New Covenant believers, and so the New Testament is directly relevant to us. But you really will never come to a full knowledge of Christ and his gospel apart from the Old Testament foundation. And in addition, we find plenty of timeless truths and lessons for ourselves today anyway from the Old Testament. We have many reasons to get to know the Old Testament. Now, since it's been such a long time, I want to take a little bit to remind you how we're going about this study and some of you, I don't even think were at the church six months ago. This is all new to you. But for this time around, I want to give you um, a little recap of how we use our evenings with this Bible study uh, in, the, uh, in our evening times. For this study, we're just trying to give you a solid introduction to the books of the Old Testament. And to do that, we're disciplining ourselves, or pretty much I'm disciplining myself to keep it to one book per evening. It's not easy for me to do. I'm typically long-winded, but just one book per evening, and then we're, we're off to the next one. And we're trying to help you gain a better understanding of each of the, the 39 books of the Old Testament. Trying to enrich your own personal reading of the Old Testament, and just adding another layer of foundation to your knowledge of God's Word. So with this time, all we can really do is give you the, the 40,000-foot view of these books of the Bible, giving you the big picture in the background, like the author, the audience, the aim, the setting. But I want to delve even further into the purpose of these books. The Old Testament books, they are real history, but they're not just history. These authors had specific theological purposes in their writing. They're trying to tell us something about God or his plan of salvation for us. And we need to make sure we get this. Too many people have reduced the Old Testament to just a, a series of intriguing stories like Noah and the flood, Moses and the Red Sea, Jonah and the fish. But the Old Testament is so much more. And so, yes, we are covering basic background to these Old Testament books, but I also want to take you a bit deeper, go behind the curtain and show you that the purpose to these books 
and how they fit into the progress of God's revelation and, and revealing himself and his plan of salvation for all the nations. And so I would, we try and include some special themes. We save some time at the end for a bit of application. And although this will be introductory, I still bet there will be many things you'll, you'll come away with that you did not know before. And hopefully you can apply to your life. Well, I think that's enough to resituate us in this study. And for the rest of our time this evening, we're just going and resuming where we had left off. We finished Joshua. And that means next is Judges. That's where we are tonight. This is lesson nine in Judges. So take your Bible and just open up to Judges. Judges 2, to be precise, we'll get there soon. You know, Judges is such a unique book of the Old Testament. There really is nothing like it, and it plays a unique role. Historically and theologically, Judges bridges the the near 400-year gap between the, the time of the conquest and the time of the kings, the monarchy. Judges is like everything that happened in between. And you might think, you know, that this, this time, we don't pay much attention to it. We spend most of our time thinking about the time of the kings. But the time before the kings was quite significant. And some huge theological lessons come to us from this time about God's plan of, of salvation. Now, before we get too far ahead of ourselves, I'm going to bring back kind of the standard outline I've been using for this study. For all these Old Testament studies, help bring some consistency to each of our times together. And so we begin with the first section, and that's just basic background. Let's start with the basic background. Things like the title, the the title of the book is Judges, same for the Hebrew Bible as the Greek Bible. And when you think of the word judges, you think like today, an an arbiter of the law, but really the the type of judge here is really referring to a deliverer. This book is titled after its cast of characters whom God raised up to deliver his people in a time of trouble. So don't think like judge of the law per se. These were deliverers. The author who wrote Judges, we don't know for sure. The book itself never identifies its author. If you give weight to Jewish tradition, then Samuel is the author. The Jews believed the prophet Samuel wrote this letter or this book rather. He was a prophet at the end of the era. Samuel bridged the gap between the judges and the kings. He's the one who anointed David to be king. He, and this book was written at the tail end or the beginning of the kings. So Samuel would be a pretty good candidate, but we just don't know for sure. The audience. Judges, it, it's, it was written much later, but it reads like, like a sequel to Joshua. A sad sequel to Joshua. And Joshua, the audience was really future generations of Israelites to learn and remember the God who gave them the land, that they would not forget him or forsake him. Judges is likewise written to future generations of Israelites. But the flip side, it's showing them the disastrous consequences of of forgetting God and forsaking his uh, covenant. That's what you get. This is not a good history. This was some of the lowest parts and points of Israel's history. This is written, though, to to, uh, current and future Israel. Now, the date. Where does Judges sit when it comes to Israel's history? Well, it really picks up from the death of Joshua. 
We can put that at around 1390 BC or so, the death of Joshua to the death of Samson, the last judge mentioned in this book at least, 1055 BC. So we're talking a 325 year time, time span right there. And just think about that. that. That's a lot of history, 325 years. America has only been a nation for, what, 250 years. This is 325 years of Israel's history, and all we know about it, at least in the Bible, comes from these 21 chapters of the book of Judges. That's a lot of history to cram into a short portion. But remember, the purpose of these biblical books is not just to record the history of Israel. This author is not trying to create an exhaustive record of Israel's history. These were selected highlights from Israel's very real history, but they're included to teach a lesson and to send a message. We'll get to that message shortly, but just know we're dealing with the time from the conquest, Joshua, to the beginning of the king, Saul. This is the time in between. Now, related to the date is just when, when this book was written. And again, we don't know for sure, but it appears this was written early in the reign of David. We know this by, if you just read carefully and do a little internal study, Judges 1, 21 says that the Jebusites still live in Jerusalem to this day. You, you see a lot of those phrases, you know, to this day. It's giving you a little clue of the author's day in which he's writing. The thing is, though, we know that a, a relatively young David conquered Jerusalem. He drove out the Jebusites. But when Judges was written, that hadn't, or rather, yeah, when Judges was written, that hadn't happened yet. And so we know that it was written sometime before David took Jerusalem. That's about 1004 BC. You find that in 2 Samuel 5. That's why Jerusalem is called the city of David. He finally captured the great stronghold. At the very least, we know this was written early in the time of the kings because judges will see this big part of its purpose. It's reflecting back when there was no king in Israel and, and how bad it was when there was no king. Now, still in the basic background, I want to include one more little subheader, and that's the setting. The setting to the book of Judges is really critical to understand. You have to make sure you understand that we're picking up right after Joshua. How did Joshua end? I'll give you a little recap. If the generation of Joshua, it's the second generation after the Exodus, and they were largely faithful generation, and they obeyed God. They, they went in, they took, conquered the promised land. Joshua ends. Joshua in his old age, he's looking back, he's looking forward. The conquest is not fully over. The land is in their possession, yes, but Israel has not fully driven out all the pagan nations still in their borders. There's work to be done. And then Israel must continue to remember their God and walk in his ways. Joshua knows this, but he knows his time has come. He's not going to live too much longer. So Joshua ends with Joshua assembling all Israel to come to him. And he basically charges the people to, to carry on, to finish driving out the enemies from the land, and then to follow the voice of the Lord. 
He finishes with the big charge. Joshua 24, 15, he says, Choose today whom you will serve, whether Yahweh or Baal or so forth. He says, As for me and my household, we will serve the Lord. He charges the people. Do you remember how the people respond to that charge? They agree. They say, yes, we will serve Yahweh, our God. Far be it from us to forsake this God who gave us the land. The people all covenant to remember their God. And did they? Yes, that generation did. Joshua dies, but even after As the elders remain, they continue to remember their God and walk in his ways, and it goes well. But then all those men died too, and that that second generation goes, and their elders go. Time goes on. The generation of the conquest dies out. It's replaced by a new generation. And that's when things change, because that generation was not faithful to remember or obey God. They very quickly forgot all about God and what he did for them. And this is the opening to the setting of Judges. This sets up Judges. So go to Judges chapter 2. We'll just look at a a few verses. You go, no, this is not exhaustive. It can't be, but sampling. Judges 2.6 says, When Joshua had dismissed the people, the sons of Israel Each went to his inheritance to possess the land. This is looking back to uh, when Joshua was still alive. It says, The people served the Lord all the days of Joshua and all the days of the elders who survived Joshua, who had seen the great work of the Lord, which he had done for Israel. Then Joshua, the son of Nun, the servant of the Lord, died at the age of 110. And they buried him in the territory of his inheritance in Timnath-Heres in the hill country of Ephraim, north of Mount Gash. All that generation also were gathered to their fathers. This is verse 10. And there arose another generation after them who did not know the Lord, nor yet the work which he had done for Israel. They had this generation was stellar in trusting the Lord. They failed as parents. They failed Deuteronomy 6 to instruct their children in the way of the Lord. They failed to pass on their faith to the next generation. And it just took one generation for things to get very bad. Verse 11, it says, Then the sons of Israel did evil in the sight of the Lord and served the Baals. And they forsook the Lord, the God of their fathers, who brought them out of the land of Egypt and followed other gods from among the gods of the peoples who were around them and bowed themselves down to them. Thus they provoked the Lord to anger. This generation just quickly abandons God and goes astray. How does God respond? Like he said he was going to, it provoked him to anger. He will discipline them. He will chastise them. He does that by handing them over to their enemies, to the nations that remain to be oppressed. Verse 14, the anger of the Lord burned against Israel and he gave them into the hands of plunderers who plundered them. And he sold them into the hands of their enemies around them so that they could no longer stand before their enemies. Verse 15, wherever they went, the hand of the Lord was against them for evil as the Lord had spoken and as the Lord had sworn to them so that they were severely distressed. God just pressed his thumb against them and 
made them suffer for their disobedience. This was a type of judgment, a chastising for their idolatry. He warned them, and this is what's happening. But eventually, as they suffer, as they cry out, God is moved to compassion and mercy toward his nation, his people whom he chose. And so he delivers them. He raises up a person called a judge to deliver them. Verse 16 says, then the Lord raised up judges who delivered them from the hands of those who plundered them. And down to verse 18 says, when the Lord raised up judges for them, the Lord was with the judge and delivered them from the hand of their enemies all the days of the judge. For the Lord was moved to pity by their groaning because of those who oppressed and afflicted them. And so God raises up a judge. He delivers them from their enemy. They dwell securely. What do you think happens after that judge dies? They go, that generation goes right back to idolatry, to forsaking God. And they turn astray again. Verse 19. It says, but it came about when the judge died, that they would turn back and act more corruptly than their fathers and following other gods to serve them and bow down to them. They did not abandon their practices or their stubborn ways. And this cycle would basically repeat itself for the next 300 years. And this cycle plays a prominent role in judges. And most of judges just is showing that the history of it repeating this cycle if you want a good way to remember it, remember the five S's, sin, servitude, supplication, salvation, security. It starts with sin, Israel sins, they go astray from God, they forget him. It leads to servitude, God allows them to be oppressed by a foreign power. Eventually it leads to supplication, they're humbled, they cry out to God, they go back to God in supplication. Then comes salvation, God raises up a judge to deliver them. And then comes security. They dwell securely as long as the judge lives. Then it goes right back to sin. And the cycle repeats. There's seven major cycles recorded in the book of Judges across these 300 or so years. That's the setting of Judges. Israel has taken the land, but not fully driven out the inhabitants. And God warned them if they failed to do so, these little nations would be a snare to them. And for the next 300 years, that proved to be true. Israel went through cycle after cycle of idolatry and then oppression and deliverance. And that just kept continuing. I want to talk more about this cycle of sin as it's central to understanding the message of Judges. So let's quickly throw in the, the second section here in our study. We do a little basic background and then we talk about the structure or the outline. So from the basic background, let's talk about the outline of Judges. I'm going to give you a simple three-part high-level outline, but it, it captures it perfectly. In chapters 1 and 2, Israel's disobedience. Chapters 1 and 2, Israel's disobedience. And this really sets up, their kind of introduction. It sets up the book. It shows, it introduces the cycle. It gives the four main reasons Israel was being oppressed. Now they, they failed to drive the Canaanites out from the land. Thereafter, they, they intermarried with the Canaanite women. God told them not to do that. They would lead you astray. And so third, they turned away from Yahweh. And, and fourth, they turned to idolatry. These are the reasons listed for their oppression. 
In chapters 1 and 2, Israel's disobedience. Chapters 3 through 16, Israel's deliverance. Israel's deliverance. Just repeating the cycle of sin, but then deliverance through the judges. This is where the judges shine. Chapters 3 through 16 is all about these judges. Israel's deliverance. You have seven major cycles of sin, servitude, supplication, salvation, and security. And these chapters focus on six major judges. And that's Othniel, Ehud, Barak, Gideon, Jephthah, and then Samson. If you have a study Bible and you look at the beginning of your study Bible and you see the outline, you'll see it all there. And that's the best way to, to do it. Focuses on the six major judges, but then it also mentions, almost in passing, six minor judges who we really just know their name and not much about them. Now, in chapters 3 through 16, that's where these cycles play out. I'll give you just one example of these cycles. We'll just use the first one to let you feel the character of these cycles. This is from chapter 3. We won't read it, but I'll summarize it. It starts off with Israel. Not long after Joshua, they fall into sin. They intermarry with Canaanite women, and they go after their gods. They, they adopt their culture. They forget Yahweh, and now they're worshiping Baal. And the Ashtaroth, that's chapter 3, verses 6 and 7, this provokes God to anger. So there's sin, then there's servitude. He, he hands them over to the king of Mesopotamia, chapter 3, verse 8. And so Israel's sin of idolatry led to now their servitude. They're being oppressed by a foreign king. And they serve that king for eight years. But then comes supplication. They're finally broken down enough. They realize this is not good. They cry out. They go back to Yahweh in supplication. Chapter 3, verse 9. And God graciously hears them. So he sends salvation. He raises up a judge, a deliverer, Othniel. It's the first one. And he judges through military dominance. God gave the king of Mesopotamia into his hand, and he essentially saved Israel from their oppressor. We see salvation. And then comes rest or security. Chapter 3, 10 through 11, they dwell securely from their enemy for 40 years. 40 years of security under Othniel. And so you see, you see the full cycle here at the beginning of chapter 3. Sin, servitude, supplication, salvation, and then security. And that just goes on and on and on for the rest of these chapters, 3 through 16. And then the last section, when it comes to the outline, chapters 17 through 21, is Israel's depravity. Their disobedience, their deliverance, but then it finishes with Israel's depravity. These final five chapters, we'll talk about them much more later. But they just highlight the extreme depravity of Israel during this time. Israel was far gone, and they just show that when there was no king in Israel, everyone did what was right in his own eyes. But seeing that they were depraved, they weren't doing right. They certainly weren't doing right in God's eyes. And they were doing wrong. They were doing evil. That's going to bring us to the purpose. Let's, let's delve further into now the purpose of Judges, the third major section of how we organize these studies. Basic background, outline, but now purpose. And this is significant. Like, why is this book in the Bible? What's the purpose Book of Judges was clearly written after the events of this book. The author is reflecting back on them 
reflecting back on the time when there was no king in Israel. He's looking back at these 300 years of Israel's history. This was not a good part of Israel's history. These were not the good old days. These were the worst days. And they, they just started off as a nation. And it's more bad stuff. They were off to a disastrous start. They already experienced so much of God's discipline. And so first and foremost, the author writes this selective history to show future Israel the consequences of rejecting Yahweh as king. That's the first main purpose, is showing the consequences of rejecting Yahweh God as king. And that is what happened. God redeemed Israel. Remember the Exodus? He enters a covenant relationship with this nation where he'll be their God, they'll be his people. An exclusive relationship. There's only one God. He's the one true God. He's called them. They must worship him alone and obey him. But therein, they find richest blessing. That's only for their good. They covenant with this one God. God warned them, but if they disobeyed, if they violated his covenant, go after other gods, he would send curses upon them, not blessing, but curse to discipline them, show them their ways. That's precisely what happened in Judges. Israel was getting a big taste of what life was like under the discipline of God. It's not good. It's hard. It's oppressive. This is the opposite of blessing. It's a hard life. This is cursing. And they're already getting a taste of it. So we find, you know, there's one major refrain that carries through the beginning part of Judges. And it shows the author's interpretation of this history. Chapter 2, verse 11, you see the first appearance. It says, Then the sons of Israel did evil in the sight of the Lord. Chapter 3, verse 7, The sons of Israel did what was evil in the sight of the Lord. Chapter 3, verse 12, Now the sons of Israel again did evil in the sight of the Lord. Same thing, chapter 4, verse 1, chapter 6, verse 1, chapter 10, verse 6, chapter 13, verse 1. When you see a refrain like this in a book of the Bible, it's there for a reason. He's showing you why was it so bad? Well, because the sons of Israel were doing evil in the sight of the Lord. The author's looking back on these pretty much 300 years of oppression. And Judges was written so that they would know without a doubt It's not God's fault. It is their fault. Things were so bad because they did evil in the sight of the Lord. It was their disobedience, not God's unfaithfulness. God did not abandon them these 300 years. They abandoned God. And Judges, he's writing that they know and remember that very fact. Now, there's a second major refrain. That runs through the final chapters of Judges. And this cues us in on the second major purpose of the book. And this one is even bigger to understand. The second major purpose really comes out in chapters 17 through 21. The second main purpose of Judges was to demonstrate the need for a righteous king over Israel. We'll talk a lot about that. To demonstrate the need for a righteous king to rule over Israel. 
And we kind of skimmed over the final section, chapter, chapter 17 through 21. But I want to tell you more about it. You can turn there if you kind of want to follow along, but you know I'm going fast. In chapters 3 through 16, it's all about the cycle of sin, right? Sin, <clears throat> supplication, or sin, servitude, supplication, salvation, security. I think I got it too. <clears throat> but you get to chapters 17 through 21, and there's no more judges. The judges are not even mentioned in chapters 17 through 21. It's almost like an epilogue. It's not about the judges anymore. It's all about Israel's depravity. That's the only point to the last five chapters. But they're there for a big reason. There's three stories here, and I kind of want to just summarize them for you. We obviously don't have time to read these five chapters, but i got to tell you about them. These three stories in the last five chapters, they're sometimes known as the Bethlehem Chronicles because they all intersect the city of Bethlehem. That's for a reason too. We'll come back to that. You have chapter 17. The first story is short, centers on a man named Micah, and he's an idolatrous man. He claims to worship Yahweh, but he's basically making his own religion. He creates his own shrine, his own idols, his own ephod. That was a breastplate they wore to divine. He made his own sons, his priests. It's like he's setting up his own worship system. But then, chapter 17, verse 6, we see the first occurrence of the second refrain that carries through the end of Judges. Chapter 17, verse 6, talks about Micah. Then it says this, In those days, there was no king in Israel. Every man did what was right in his own eyes. And we're going to continue to see how that's true. The story goes on and we learn about this man, a Levite. Where is he from? Bethlehem. But he's a Levite. He encounters Micah. Now, if you remember, as a Levite, he's a priest. He's supposed to be holy. He's supposed to be consecrated over to the true worship of God alone. Right? That's that's like their whole deal. But he encounters Micah on a journey. And Micah basically says to him, like, hey, I'll pay you a lot of money if you become my personal household priest. And the Levite's like, great. And so he, he abandons the exclusive worship of Yahweh and becomes this guy's household priest. This is all false, idolatrous worship. This is nothing the Lord prescribed. But it's, it's already going to show just how wayward Israel had become. How far they were straying from the true worship of Yahweh. Okay, that's a short story. It carries on, though. It intersects the second story, chapter 18. We get the, the next refrain, chapter 18, verse 1. It says, in those days, there was no king of Israel. Why do you think we're being reminded that? And it goes on to tell a story of Dan. It's one of the 12 tribes. But the thing is, they had not yet taken their inheritance When the 12 tribes took the land, they each had a little parcel. They're supposed to go take it, conquer it, live in it. The Danites never did. They were just like nomads, just hanging out. And they decided, well, it's it's eventually time to take our land. But they forsake their inheritance. They're not going to the land that was given to them. They're like, let's go find somewhere better, just somewhere we want. So the tribe of Dan is basically migrating. On their way... They shouldn't have done that in the first place. 
On their way, who do they encounter? They encounter the Levite from the previous story. And that Levite divines and tells them that they will succeed in their mini conquests. They go, they succeed. As they do so, they realize, hey, that guy must be the real deal priest. So they go and kidnap him. They take him, they take the ephod, they take the shrine, they take the idols. They say, we're making you priest over the tribe of Dan. And the Levite's like, hey, great. Better than just being the priest of one guy, I can be the priest of a whole tribe. So he's happy and he goes along and becomes the priest of the tribe of Dan. The Danites seize this territory. They seize a city. That city is renamed Dan. If you know the history of Samuel and Kings, it's an extremely idolatrous city with the idolatrous history. This is how that begins. But here we go. Another story showing just how further Israel is sinking into just religious lawlessness. It's like no holds barred. None of this was prescribed in the Torah. Like just the opposite. They shouldn't be doing any of this stuff. But the the tribes were in a state of idolatrous disarray because there was no king. Then we get to the third story, which is the worst story. I'm glad there's no kids here. It's definitely PG-13 at least. This is Judges 19 through 21. Starts in chapter 19, verse 1. It says, It came about in those days when there was no king in Israel. Another refrain. And it goes on to tell the story of another Levite. Okay, it's another person that should be super holy and pure. But we learn this Levite, he takes a concubine for himself from Bethlehem. There's Bethlehem again. Takes a concubine for himself as a wife. The concubine herself is a harlot and has been living with many men. She leaves. But the day comes where he, he goes after that. I'm going to go take her back. And he, he goes, he travels, he journeys, he finds her. He takes her back home with him. And they're journeying back home together. They're on the journey. Night falls. They need to find refuge in a city. You don't want to be caught in the open. And this Levite, he refuses to spend the night in a, in a pagan city. And at that time, that was Jerusalem. He's like, we're not staying in Jerusalem. We're going to keep going to an Israelite city. Because they're so wicked, right? So he eventually makes it to Gibeah, which belonged to the tribe of Benjamin. And so they spend the night, eventually taken in by a host. And what happens that night? Well, in a scene reminiscent of Sodom and Gomorrah, the wicked men of that city surround the house. And they demand to take the man, the Levite, not the woman. They want the Levite to have their way with him, if you know what I mean. But the Levite and the host refuse. They kind of, you know, bar the door. It's very much like Sodom and Gomorrah. And that's on purpose to show how depraved Israel had become. But instead, the Levite takes his concubine, throws her out the door, and shuts it and gives her to the men. And they have their way with her throughout the whole night. In the morning, he finds his concubine wife dead on the doorstep. So he saddles her on the donkey and takes her home. Where it gets a little gruesome, but it's in scripture for a reason, to shock you with Israel's depravity. He then cuts her up into 12 pieces and sends one piece to each of the 12 tribes to send a message basically of outrage toward Benjamin. Like, look what these Benjaminites did. We can't let this stand. We must do something about wicked Benjamin. They've got to pay. So all Israel hears of this story. They're outraged. 
They assemble together to make Benjamin pay. 400,000 men of war come to fight Benjamin. It's like a little civil war. And over time they win and they almost entirely eradicate the tribe of Benjamin. If they went further, there would be no more tribe of Benjamin. Only 600 men of Benjamin remain from like, I don't know, 20, 30,000, 600 are left. And they stop. They're like, we cannot fully eradicate one of our tribes. They let them be. But the other tribes, they say, but at the same time, these guys are so wicked, we can't give them our wives to repopulate. Like, what are we going to do? So they decided to steal wives for these 600 men from a pagan nation around them and to repopulate. And that's how the book of Judges ends. Like, this whole story is crazy. It's insane. It's filled with some of the worst depravity in the Bible. And it was Israel's history. This is not a Gentile nation. This was Israel. They're supposed to be a holy, righteous nation. And this is showing how far they were from it. And what's the explanation? Look at the very last verse of Judges. There for a reason. The author is telling us something. 21-25. It says, in those days, there was no king in Israel. Everyone did what was right in his own eyes. And so we see again the second main purpose to the book of Judges. He's showing the results of Israel as rejecting God as king. And then showing the need for the people to be ruled by a righteous king. These people need a righteous ruler over them. Otherwise, they are clearly descending into total chaos. I mean, under the leadership of Moses and Joshua, Israel was led to faithfulness. But when they're on their own, they just go astray. God gave them prophets. He gave them priests, but he never gave them a king in the Torah. They didn't need a king. He was to be their king. They didn't need a mediator king. God was their king. They just needed mediator priests. But even in the Torah, you find a few verses where God makes provision one day for them to be ruled by a king. Because he knows their wayward hearts. He knows they're going to reject him as king. And he knows they're just going to need a strong, righteous king in their midst to keep them from just going off the deep end. And to keep them worshiping him alone. In this period, God gave them not kings, but judges to temporarily meet that need to to keep them from total wickedness. And the judges did lead Israel to a measure of peace, a measure of security. But as you read judges, you find that there's two problems with the judges. First, most of the judges were wicked men. They're not super righteous. They're they're basic men of faith, yes, but they're not leading Israel in true righteousness. And then secondly, most of the judges were tribal leaders. They were not national leaders. They were not uniting the whole nation in the true worship of God. Israel needed a king to lead them, unite them in righteousness. That's what they needed. Who would that king be? It would not be Saul. Remember, this is, again, on purpose, this is part of it. Saul was from what tribe? Benjamin. Throughout the whole book of Judges, Benjamin is like a villain tribe. 
Probably why this book was written in the time of David, supporting the Davidic lineage, the Davidic kingship, not Saul. He's from Benjamin, remember? Remember them? They're painted as villains, and Saul himself did not have a heart for the Lord. But after Saul comes David, a man after God's own heart, a man chosen by God. He's from the tribe of Judah. Throughout Judges, Judah is painted as the hero tribe. And here's the difference. You know, the problem of judges, when there was no king, the refrain, everyone did what was right in his own eyes. The contrast with David the king. According to 1 Kings 15.5, it says, David did what was right in the eyes of the Lord. You see the clear contrast between the no king and the king. David did what was right in the eyes of the Lord. David would be at least the archetype of the righteous king Israel needed to finally lead them in the true worship of God. And by the way, where is David born? Bethlehem. You know, that, that city that was just a few years before known for unspeakable depravity. But God called forth from that city a, a righteous king to lead them. And David would do that. Now, not perfectly, David too proved to be a sinner. And in his failure, Israel learned, you know, what they really need is a perfect righteous king to lead them. They need like, like a Messiah to lead them in righteousness. That's a lesson for 1st, 2nd Samuel and 1st, 2nd Kings. We'll save that for a few weeks. But for now, see how Judges fits into the progress of God's revelation. This is what happens when you reject God as king. Total lawlessness, anarchy, idolatry. This is why Israel went astray. This is why America is going astray. Why every nation goes astray. The judges help them get by, but what they really needed was a king to lead them in worship and righteousness. That is the purpose of judges. Now, we're almost done here. We're squeezing a lot of content into the study. I want to squeeze in a little bit more. Each lesson, we try and include one special theme. I could rattle off like 10 themes, but you're not even going to remember that. So I focus on like one special theme to these books. And so let's just do one for this time, a special theme of the judges. The judges themselves. Let's consider them real quick. Now, who were these judges? It's kind of going back to chapters 3 through 16. They were not elected officials. They did not inherit their office. They were not appointed. They're just charismatic leaders who rose up when there was a need. Most of their service was military in nature. They functioned kind of like mini kings, and they led the people in tribal warfare. But They're not spiritual leaders. Don't think of the judges as great spiritual leaders. We don't see the judges calling the people back to worship Yahweh alone. They're not really concerned about the ark or the tabernacle. The Lord raised them up. It says several times in Judges, he filled them with his spirit. But in the Old Testament, that does not even necessarily mean salvation. It just means God chose them and used them for a special deliverance. They were temporarily filled with the spirit like Saul. And he used them for a moment. In fact, you know, most of the judges were bad guys. 
They're not spiritual role models. The first three were pretty good. Othniel, Ehud, and Deborah and Barak were, are seen more positively in the book of Judges. But the second big three have all significant flaws. You know, Gideon he had some redeeming qualities, but he eventually led the people in serious false worship. Jephthah commits child sacrifice. And then Samson, well, you all know, He's completely immoral. And uh, you see, all the judges were just a mixed bag. At the very least, there's one redeeming quality to all these judges, though. And that's what qualified them for their work. And that is that they were men of faith. That faith may have been little. That faith may have been weak. That faith may have come with their last breath of life, like for Samson. But at at one point, they all display a very basic but real trust in Yahweh to work through them. And that's what God wants. That's what he looks for. He he rewards faith. Without faith, you can't even please him. This is why, this is the only reason why we find some truly unexpected names show up in the Faith Hall of Fame of Hebrews 11. I'll read that for you. Hebrews 11, 32, where the author says, What more shall I say? For time will fail me if I tell of Gideon, Barak, Samson, Jephthah. He says of David and Samuel and the prophets who by faith conquered kingdoms, performed acts of righteousness, obtained promises, shut the mouths of lions, quenched the power of fire, escaped the edge of the sword, from weakness were made strong, became mighty in war, put foreign armies to flight. You know, the judges at the very least show us that all it takes is faith the size of a mustard seed to be used by God to do great things. And that can lead us to some application. We've got to finish up. Let's finish a final section we, we do application for today. And let's, let's reflect on some lessons from Judges. And the first, in line with what we are just talking about, live by faith. For you to learn, to live by faith. And speaking of Hebrews 11, it Chapter uh, 11, verse 1 says, Faith is the assurance of things hoped for, the conviction of things not seen. He says, For by it the men of old gained approval. In reality, none of us are righteous. We're all wicked. We're all depraved. We all go astray from the true worship of God. And apart from His grace, we'd be lost forever. But We can be thankful living on this side of the cross. We know that the true king of righteousness has already come in Christ Jesus. He died on the cross. He rose again to forgive us our sins, to give us his righteousness. But we we gain that one way and one way only. That's by faith. The men of old gained approval by faith. And while we still find God's approval, his favor, not by merit, simply by faith faith through the Savior King. And faith is still the only means of finding God's approval. You might be like Samson. We don't have time to read the stories. You do that yourself. But you know, your whole life may have been characterized by wickedness and idolatry, immorality, deceit. And now you may be in your old age. But Samson shows it's not too late to turn your life to God, to turn today your life to Christ by faith. Live by faith. Like the thief on the cross, you still enter his kingdom 
forever. That, that's just a miracle of grace that your last moment could be a moment of true saving faith. And by faith, you'll be used by God. We learn in Judges, he, he doesn't use perfect people. There are none. And he doesn't use the best society has to offer, the wise man, the scribe, the sage. No, he uses the humble, the meek, the broken, the lowly, but those who, who go to him with a real trust, who, who trust in his power to save. God uses those people. He gets the glory. They get the blessing. That can be you. Go to him by faith. You'll be used by him by faith. Live by faith. Secondly, a second lesson. Hope in Christ as your king. Really think about that. Do you hope in Christ? We think of him as Lord and Savior. He has many titles, but think of him as your sovereign, your king. Judges gives us such a visceral lesson. People need righteous leadership. All of us, left to our own devices, humanity quickly plunges into depravity. And you add this to the lesson of Samuel and Kings, we're going to learn a human king won't do because they're all sinners too. They're corrupt as well. We need a divine king. We need a savior Messiah. But again, Christ has come. The Lord has finally given us the one who can lead us in everlasting righteousness. Jesus is the king of kings and the Lord of lords. So what should you do? Bow the knee to him. Make sure you recognize him as your king and you live that way. Serve him. Make him your hope. Right? Make him your hope for the ultimate deliverance we're looking for. And on the flip side, you know what that means? Don't make human government your hope. It's not a hope. Human governments in all forms will fail you. From socialism to capitalism. From communism to democracy. They're all corrupt eventually because they're all run by corrupt sinful men. Only Christ's kingdom will be characterized by perfect righteousness. We're still looking for that city. We're still longing for that kingdom. But our hope is found in the king who's already come and is coming back. You need to make Christ the anchor of your hope. I think we all, we're all learning that lesson anyway, not to put our hope in human government. There are no political saviors, but, but Christ is. You need to truly find your peace in the coming king. And amidst a time of turmoil, hope in Christ as king. Let's do two more and then we'll finish. Third lesson from Judges. Be holy or be disciplined. Right? You know, be holy or be disciplined. I mean, if Judges doesn't make you fear sinning against a holy God, well, it should. He's not mocked. He redeemed Israel. He gave them this land. And this is how they treat him. They forget him. They trample underfoot his covenant. But because he loved them, he disciplined them. God only wants the best for Israel, and that is their holiness. And he's happy to use affliction to teach them that lesson. That still happens today. God has told you, don't flirt with the world. He told them, don't marry the Canaanites. He tells you, don't love the world or the things of the world. If you do, of course, to some degree, your heart will be led astray from God alone. 
You let that happen, you'll become corrupt. It's just a matter of time. And if so, well, if you're a true child, at the very least, expect discipline to come to you. It's for your good, but beware and be warned. God has good things for his people in this life and the life to come. He is a good father, but he calls you to be holy as he is holy. So beware of love for this world, but instead love Christ. Pursue his holiness, and therein you'll find a greater peace and joy in this life and the life to come. Lastly, let's just do one more. A fourth lesson. We could surely add more, but a fourth lesson from Judges just to praise God for his long-suffering and mercy. And praise God for his long-suffering and mercy. When you think about judges, it makes you wonder, like, why did he wait 800 years? What I mean by that is, if you know Israel's history, they eventually were totally judged. They lost the land. They're kicked out of the land. The temple's destroyed. They're scattered. They're done for until the very end. That happened... Much later, 722 BC, 586 BC is when that happened. Because their idolatry and immorality just got too far. If you read Judges, you're like, he could have done that 800 years before. He could have done that in the time of the Judges. They were that wicked already in the time of the Judges. Why didn't God wipe them out, take back the land? It's just because the show, and God has greater plans, but he's truly long-suffering. Like hundreds of years long suffering. And that goes for you and me too. And you should thank God for that or else we would all be consumed. He's still patient even with our ongoing sin as as his children. He's redeemed us. He's brought us on an exodus from slavery to sin. But we still forget him, so to speak, and sin against him. He's still patient with us. That's because in his grace, he chose to set his mercy on us. He did that with Israel. They deserved total conquest, devastation, judgment. They deserve that for their sin. But still, by God's sovereign grace, he set his love on them. And even though they were wayward, he was moved to compassion and to mercy and to deliver them. And that's what he did. Even now, Though the nation of Israel is still hardened in judgment, they will once again in the, in the final days be redeemed. But that mercy extends to us and the church as well. And we were under his judgment. We deserved it. Think about your own wickedness and waywardness before salvation. But if you know Christ, just think of mercy that you've received. You've, you've got total forgiveness. You have an eternal inheritance with Christ. That's just the glory of God's long suffering and mercy. So, well, you should thank God for that. You should praise God for that each and every day. You should live in light of that, not take advantage of it. Don't waste it. Praise him for his long suffering and his mercy. It's good to end at least on a high note because otherwise the book of Judges is just so depressing. It's just a a depraved book of the Bible. But that's meant to highlight the goodness, the greatness, and the glory of God who saves us from sin, from ourselves, from our own devices. And he still does. That'll do it. Let's close in a word of prayer. I trust and pray you find some benefit. And uh, read through Judges again. You'll get more out of it. Let's wrap up. Let's pray.
Our God, we do want to let this evening end on a note of your, your glory. And we see that glory in your mercy, your patience, your long-suffering with sinners. That's the whole world. Otherwise, this world would have been judged a long time ago. But you've, you've deemed to save some, to call out a church to yourself, a body of the redeemed. Is that your love on us? You're patient with all of our failings, our own wickedness, our own moments of idolatry, spiritual adultery. We deserve a just judgment, but in Christ we find mercy and salvation, an exodus, a redemption. We thank you, Lord. We want to praise you this evening, truly. Even from a study of judges, it can and should lead us to praise you for how you have been merciful to us. We know that comes through Christ, and he is our king now, the king who died for us. And so we are, we are very happy just to bow the knee to him as our king and, and kiss the ring. We love him and we pray for him to return quickly because this world needs a righteous king to, to judge, to save. He's our hope though. May we live with this hope. May we honor him as king each and every day. And just until he returns, may we be just the righteous people of the king. We thank you. In Christ's name we pray. Amen.